This message comes from Capital One. Your business faces unique challenges and opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services backed by the strength of a top 10 commercial bank. Visit CapitalOne.com slash commercial. Member FDIC. Here on Pop Culture Happy Hour, you know we love to talk show business. And just as much, we love to talk about books. Naturally, that means you see where this is going, books about show business. I'm Glenn Weldon. And I'm Linda Holmes. And today we're talking about books about show business from NPR's Books We Love on Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. This message comes from Capital One, presenting sponsor of the 2024 Tiny Desk Contest. Earlier this year, unsigned musicians from around the country submitted their original songs for the 10th annual Tiny Desk Contest. The panel of judges are hard at work picking standout entries, and you can follow along and choose your favorite videos as well. The winner gets to play their very own Tiny Desk Concert, then headline a tour with NPR Music this summer. Want to come along for the ride? Visit tinydeskcontest.npr.org to learn more. Then check out the Venture X card from presenting sponsor Capital One. Earn unlimited 2X miles on everything you buy and turn everyday purchases into extraordinary trips. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com for details. Support for NPR and the following message come from the American Cancer Society. Dr. Alpa Patel leads a team that researches cancer risk factors, and she shares how a new study aims to impact an underrepresented community. My greatest hope for the Voices of Black Women study is that it will help us understand and identify culturally tailored ways to change and really eliminate the unacceptable disparities for future generations of Black women as it relates to cancer. To learn more, go to voices.cancer.org. Well, it is just the two of us today. You may well know what Books We Love is, but in case you don't, each year NPR gathers recommendations from contributors and critics and staff in all kinds of genres, fiction and nonfiction, books for kids, cookbooks, memoirs. There's a little bit of just about everything. And one of the ways you can sort is by books about showbiz. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Glenn, I want to go directly to your first pick. Sure. My first pick, uh, I think you're familiar with this author, is Sure, I'll Join Your Cult by the great Maria Bamford. You know Maria, right? Yes, I do. Yeah, she's a a stand-up comic, of course. She's an actor. She's a writer. And man, if she comes to a comedy club anywhere near you, you should just go, Mm -hmm. Linda. So the thing that makes her great as a stand-up is, well, it's on the surface, it's her ability to assume all these different personas and voices, just, you know, hairpin turns in a single sentence. But it's more than that. It's what she does with that because she is so honest, searingly honest and open and just kind of compulsively eager to share with you her insecurities and her hangups, which is something that, you know, stand-ups do. But she goes further than that because she talks openly 
and mm-hmm. I think hilariously about living with mental illness and all the therapies and 12-step groups and meds that she's tried over the years, uh, some of which have helped and some of which have very, very not. And um, what she's out here doing, she's out here confronting the stigma surrounding mental illness by exposing its uselessness of the stigma and the hypocrisy of that stigma. And the thing about this book is everything you love about her as a stand-up, because I think she's the best in the biz, is just radiating from every page. She walks us through all the various cults she's joined over the years. Now, her definition of cult is probably different than yours or mine. But in her mind, it's any group of people with a unique set of beliefs that are not – you know, widely shared by people outside that group. Right. For example, show business, <laughs> appropriately enough, is a is a cult in her mind. Her family is a cult in her mind. And she writes about her experiences with a lot of self-help groups and a lot of self-help books. Right. And man, if she finds your self-help book irresponsible or dangerous, she's coming at you with both barrels. She, she does not <laughs> hold back. It's a lot of fun to read that. Ultimately, this is a book about – needing to belong someplace and needing to improve oneself and needing to kind of make a space for yourself. Now, Linda, just as a general rule, Mm -hmm. I think we can agree. If a book is written by a performer and said performer reads the audiobook, just get the audiobook always, right? Yes. Generally, yes. Yeah. So that's my first pick. The full title is Sure, I'll Join Your Cult, A Memoir of Mental Illness and the Quest to Belong Anywhere by Maria Bamford. That is a great pick. I am a big fan of her, and I love uh, stuff about cults. So Uh even though (laughs) it sounds like they're not all traditional cults, it's probably close enough uh, for me. Yep. Uh, Go ahead and give me your second pick. Okay. That is Opposable Thumbs, colon, How Siskel and Ebert Changed Movies Forever. By Matt Singer. Mm-hmm. Now, that is a big swing of a subtitle, right? <laughs> like, uh, How Siskel and Liebert Changed in Movies Forever. I bet some people who did not grow up in the era of Siskel and Liebert watching them every week on TV is prob- are probably thinking that's a stretch. But, Linda, you and I grew up at the same time. Yep. We watched these guys. Yep. What do you think that's a stretch? Not at all. It's not a stretch at all. He makes a great case for why this is the case. I have not finished this book, but I am reading this book. And he makes a great case. And I think also he manages to sort of – write about the influence of these critics who, for a lot of people my age, are how they learned what movie reviews were. Exactly. I mean, they inspired a generation of viewers, certainly. But as you point out, he also inspired a generation of critics, high, (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to love film and not just film and leave it at that, but to love, you know, the hopefully intelligent discussion of film, a real engagement with film. And I used to watch them every week with my dad and he'd sit there Quietly seething, you know, because he was a he was a working class guy. Started as a telephone lineman, worked his way up to middle management at Ma Bell, and he was sitting there watching these two dudes just opine about movies. And he would sit there just going, "That's just their opinion." And people make a living at this. Yeah, you know, he passed before I started making a, a living <laughs> as a critic full time, and I kind of think I dodged a bullet there. I mean, he was he eventually got the gay thing. I don't think he would have ever gotten the film critic <laughs> thing, but. What they did was they made me at least start thinking about film and film criticism and started and sent me to Pauline Kael and Vincent Canby and Andrew Saris, right. Film Comment Magazine. And I made a booklet of mini film reviews so that people could, you know, sort through it and pick which film they wanted to watch. So this book is entirely about the effect they had 
and why they had that effect. And of course, it was their chemistry. They did not like each other. And Singer is very clear that that wasn't a bit, right? That wasn't a put on. They did not like each other. But the needle he threads so well in this book is that he makes it clear they weren't enemies. They were professional rivals. They were mm-hmm. old school newspaper men who thrived on competition, right? Right, on getting one up over on the other. And, and that was the engine of the show. And while a lot of established film critics at the time looked down their noses at them for what they called dumbing down criticism. Sure. And by the way, anytime you read the words dumbing down, what that means is popularizing. <laughs> popularizing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were out here reaching millions and millions of people, not thousands the way some of these other critics were reaching. And and they were also using that well. They were championing films and filmmakers that people who lived in suburban areas or rural areas had to really hunt down. So – yeah, they got a lot of things wrong and you can go on YouTube today and, and go down a well of just how much stuff they got wrong. But whenever they did so, they were wrong passionately and sincerely and thoughtfully. And I think, you know, I mean, Linda, we kind of do what they do. That's that's the goal, right? <laughs> when you're wrong, you're wrong well. It is. And I mean, to be able to like be wrong and not, you know, get a complex about it and not let it stop you from being open about your opinion in the future. I mean, I I was so uh-huh. – I learned so much about appreciating film, especially from Roger Ebert. I used to have several of those big, gigantic books of his reviews sure. that there were. Um, and I would uh-huh. – basically, anytime I saw a movie, I would look up what his – you know, a movie that that was already out. I would go and look up what his review of it was. Um, and I would go from one review where he mentioned a movie and go read about that movie and then go read about the next movie. And mm-hmm. so there are a lot of movies that I that I read his reviews of that I don't necessarily um, think I ever saw, you know, right? because I just wanted to read about it. I think Matt, you know, has really done the research here mm-hmm. to kind of very deeply engage with the show itself and with kind of who they were, but also the history of like, what it meant to try to get this kind of show on television at the time and Mm -hmm. what made it popular. And it's a special book. I agree with you. Okay. So that is Opposable Thumbs, How Siskel and Ebert Changed Movies Forever by Matt Singer. That's my second pick. Go ahead. What's yours? Uh, My pick is uh, also about the movies. It's called Oscar Wars, A History of Hollywood in Gold, Sweat, and Tears. It's by Michael Shulman. This is a history of the Oscars, going all the way back to the beginning, to how the Academy was formed, how the Oscars were started, what the Oscars were started for, what the Academy was started for. So there's a lot of kind of structural stuff about Hollywood and about, you know, how much these awards have always been polluted by what they were for, which was Mm -hmm. never exactly just recognizing the best films, you know? Yeah. So he does go through a lot of structural stuff about the Academy and its history, but it also works really well as a history of movies in the mostly 20th century, although it it does come up to recently, including the, there's a very juicy chapter about the Moonlight debacle, the Warren Beatty, Faye Dunaway Moonlight debacle. What I like about it is as it goes through different years and eras in Oscars, like, for example, the blacklist, the time when the blacklist was really important, was really important to the Oscars because, you know, in terms of whether you could get nominated and whether you could win and whether your name would be on the award if you did win. So it becomes also like about the blacklist and about how Hollywood was responding to it. Same thing with the civil rights movement. And one of the things, obviously, as you start a book like this, you think, how is he going to deal with the questions about race that have been, you know, 
raised about the Oscars for many, many, many years, but have particularly, I think, gotten more attention in the last few years in kind of the mainstream press. And I liked his approach. His approach was to go kind of very detailed into the stories of Hattie McDaniel, Sidney Poitier, and Halle Berry. And goes deeply into sort of who these actors were at the time that they were nominated, how they were perceived, including, you know, by largely white audiences, by black audiences, by black critics Mm -hmm. uh, and journalists. And I think that by going into those stories really deeply, I think that's a good way to deal with that without kind of getting to the thing where like you acknowledge it 400 times, but never really say anything about it, which is a way that this kind of thing can go. So I just think it's very like gossipy and juicy. There are some great uh, stories about the, uh, the whole Olivia de Havilland and um, Joan Fontaine and this very kind of what you want uh, little feud that they had, but it's also really smart. And it also taught me a lot about the Oscars and about movies in general. So I definitely recommend it. Again, it's called Oscar Wars, A History of Hollywood in Gold, Sweat, and Tears. If he spends any ink on the Rob Lowe Snow White opening number, the infamous oh, yes. Rob Lowe oh, Snow yes. White opening number, I'm buying the book right now. Uh, basically a whole chapter, I think. There we go. Okay, my final pick is Outrageous, A History of Showbiz and the Culture Wars by Cliff Nesteroff. I like uh, Nesteroff. He's a historian of... Showbiz, particularly comedy, I recommended his previous book, The Comedians, which was about the history of American comedy. And this book is just something to have handy if you're ever around that one uncle of yours and he starts talking about wokeism and cancel culture and comedians can't joke about anything anymore. This Just have this book handy so you can whip it at his head. Because what this is is a chronicle of the history of people complaining about comedians. Back in the day, it tended to be religious groups and government institutions complaining about vulgarity and bad taste, which translates often into just any kind of open discussion of sex or religion or race. Cut to today and some of the same, you know, the same interests on the right are now complaining that you can't say anything anymore. But of course, it is always coming from the same place. It's coming from a resistance to social change. It's an insistence that things stay exactly the way they've always been. It's a refusal to engage with any shifts in culture and an insistence that it's coming from a place of I should be able to say anything I want without consequences of any kind because whatever I think is endlessly fascinating because I thought it and the culture has traditionally valued people like me mm-hmm. higher than other people. That's mm-hmm. all it is. And I want to be clear here. It's not that Nesterov is exactly making that argument. This book does not make any kind of argument like that. He is not a critic. He's not an essayist. He is a historian. He is a chronicler. So what this book does is simply lay out case after case after case of times when entertainers have come in for some kind of attempted shaming or scolding or boycott by these self-appointed scolds who profess to speak for vast swaths of the populace. Mm -hmm. So what this book really provides, and it provides it in spades, is exactly what anytime anybody talks about cancer culture, what is lacking, which is context, the long view, the big picture – I'll confess I sometimes wanted him to make an argument of some kind, but that's what another book that came out recently called Comedy Book by Jesse David Fox does. This book is data. It is facts. And it's what you need before you can build an argument. So Mm -hmm. it's a really entertaining and and deep dive that's outrageous, a history of showbiz and the culture wars by Cliff Nesteroff. Love it. I think I'm going to have to read it, Glenn. You added a bunch of stuff to my reading list here, bud. So That's the plan. When I'm very busy and I write you – 
an email telling you that I was up in the middle of the night reading something you recommended, you'll know you did it. This will always be the goal. All right. All right. If you want to discover even more books NPR loves, visit npr.org slash best books. And that brings us to the end of our show. Glenn Weldon, buddy, thank you so much for being here. Waiting for your text. Thank you, Linda. This episode was produced by Hafsa Fathima and Ramel Wood and edited by Jessica Reedy. Hello, Come In provides our theme music. Thank you for listening to Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. I'm Linda Holmes, and we'll see you all tomorrow. This message comes from NPR sponsor Viore, a new perspective on performance apparel. Clothing designed with premium fabrics, built to move in, styled for life. For 20% off your first purchase, go to viore.com slash NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Rosetta Stone, an expert in language learning for 30 years. Right now, NPR listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership to 25 different languages for 50% off. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. What does it mean to be Black in America? In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as the Black experience, you'll hear it means everything. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts.